0: Well, good morning again. It's great to be in worship with you. It's great to see a lot of new faces. I'd love to uh, make your acquaintance to meet you afterwards if you can stick around. Uh, If you are new, if you're visiting with us, we've been going through a rather extended study of the gospel of Luke. And we've come to Luke chapter 13. This is our gospel reading. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, Are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, the first who will be last. At that t- time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who who are sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a particularly pertinent, relevant passage. Many of you here are considering Christianity. What would it be like to truly believe? What would it be like to step into uh, the faith of Christianity? And one of the hurdles that you have. In fact, if we seriously wrestle with this passage, most of us would have this burden, this hurdle, is what about this narrow door? Is the invitation really narrow? And if you're a Christian wanting to talk with others about your faith, about what it means to be a Christian, then you better have an answer to this issue. What does it mean that Jesus' way, Jesus' door, Jesus' message is narrow? We should all consider this. We're going to look at this passage from just three perspectives. The width of the door, how wide is it? The key to the door, how do you open it? And then the other side of the door, what's on the other side? So the width, the key, and the other side. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we pray for this time that you would seek us out, that you would invite us through this narrow door. There are many of us here this morning who are hurting, who are wondering if you are still present in our lives. We are hurting because of strife at work, because of conflict with friends or family, and we need you to step into our lives in a new way, to remind us that you are present, to remind us that you have not only opened the door, but you have carried us through it. Some of us are lonely. Some of us need friendship. We need companionship. We need a relationship that you can use to demonstrate your presence and nearness through. Others of us are on top of the world. We're winning. And Lord, we need to be reminded that every good gift comes from you, that behind all of our prosperity, all of our possessions is the smiling face of God that you give and we receive. Wherever we're coming from this morning, what binds us together is that it's no accident that we're here and that we all need to hear from you. We all need you to meet with us. And I pray that you would do that this morning through the singing, through the reading of Scripture, now through the sermon. I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus, since... 9.51, since chapter 9.51, there was a major transition in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And from there, he turned his face towards Jerusalem. And now everything that we read up until the Passion Week is on his way to Jerusalem. That's the context. He's on his way to die. He's on his way to give his life over for you and I. That's the context. And someone raises their hand up and says, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, as has become his custom, he has this peculiar way of answering questions, and upon first glance, it seems that he's being evasive, but he's answering the question. He's answering the question that they should be asking, not the one that that they actually are asking in that moment. He doesn't give them speculative answers, speculative statistics or figures of how many are going to be saved. In fact, he seems to be answering how many won't be saved. Well, what's he doing? He's taking this question, this speculative question, wanting answers, wanting figures, wanting numbers, and he's taking this speculative question and making it very practical. He's taking what is a theoretical question and making it very personal. He's choosing to answer what they should be asking and what you and I should be asking. He knows through their pretense, he sees through their pretense and knows that what they're asking is how many of us are going to be saved. Now he could have, in answering this question, simply referred back to our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 25. And throughout Isaiah, you see the prophet opening up the kingdom of God to anyone who will come in that the kings of other nations, that all peoples from everywhere will flood into the kingdom. And he could have just pointed to that and said, it's more than you expect. But he knows that since Isaiah was written down to this time, that the scope of that salvation has been very limited. It has been very refined, only down to a few. Only a few of the truly faithful Jews will get in. And so they're asking Not how many of the whole world, will your gospel go forth like Isaiah said? Will everyone be included? They're saying, how many of us will be saved? And rather than giving a direct answer, he says, make every effort. Strive to find out the answer to this question. This doesn't mean that salvation comes to the hardest worker, What he is saying is, pursue the truth. Pursue the answer to that question. Not in a speculative way, but in a very personal way. In a very practical way. Are you interested in how many are going to be saved? Ask have you really encountered Jesus? Have you really entered into the kingdom? Pursue truth, pursue the answers. Often a caricature caricature of Christianity is the lack of circumspection. It's the lack of open-mindedness, that the the role of the church, the role of doctrinal statements is to sort of keep people in line. It's to create a box and to maintain the status quo, to maintain narrow-mindedness. But if we understand Jesus, if we listen to what he's saying, it's exactly the opposite. He wants them, he wants you and I to slow down and ask, Are we being presumptuous? Are we taking something for granted? Are we too comfortable with the status quo to see that Jesus is destroying it? Are we too narrow minded to consider that Jesus has the way to eternal life, the way into God's presence? And have we experienced it? The gospel, the way. The door is not narrow in the way that we would think. When he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, he's not entering into their speculation about the number of people who are going to be saved. He's not saying that the number is narrow, but that the door itself is narrow. Now, what makes a door narrow or not? If you have ever built a home or worked on a home or bought a door to replace your door and you going into the outside on the porch, you know that the measurements for uh, exterior door is 36 inches. That basically fits most normal human-sized people, 36 inches. But if you make your garage door 36 inches, it's too narrow. It's not going to fit your car. A garage door has to be about eight feet wide, and most cars that you drive today will fit through that. But you can't take a standard home-sized garage door and put it on a firehouse because a fire truck won't go through eight feet. What am I getting at? What makes a door narrow or not? What makes a door narrow is what has to go through the door. It's determined by what has to go through it. The door of salvation is wider or narrower based on who's trying to go through it. And some people are bigger than others. The more of yourself that you're trying to squeeze through the door, the more narrow it will seem because there are some parts that just won't go. The door is plenty wide to accommodate the right-sized people with the right perspective, with the right pursuit of truth. It's very wide for that type person. But for many, it will be too narrow. Now, what does this mean? Who's going to find it? Well, Jesus gives us an idea here because he says that there will be some on the other side of the door after the door is closed that will complain, that will object, that the door is too narrow. And what will be their complaint? Well, Jesus, verse 26, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. In other words, Jesus, come on, you're one of us. You've come to us. You've come to Israel. You've preached in our streets You've sat at our table. We've dined together. This is the response of privilege. It's the response of the firsters, the entitled crowd. It's the response of those who believe in religious exceptionalism, that look at who we are, look at our history, look at our path, look at what we've done. Therefore, we should get through the door. This is the entitlement of a firster mentality. You came to us first, Jesus, so of course... We should be able to come through the door. They want to walk through the door without leaving behind their religious exceptionalism, without leaving behind their religious pride, without leaving behind their pretense, their ethnic firstness. They want to carry all of this through the door, but the door's too narrow for that. It won't fit. In effect, they want to carry themselves through the door, and that's not what the door is made for their appeals become self-incriminating. Because you see, the fact that they claim their historic relationship with these fathers of the faith, they say, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those are our, our fathers of the faith. That is not their ticket through the door. And that's what keeps them on the other side. Because what Jesus is implying is if you were children of Abraham, if you really were children of Isaac, And of Jacob and of all the prophets, you would never claim access to God through them, but only through your own repentance. Repentance. Where does that come out in the text? That's the key. How wide is the the door? How narrow is the door? Well, it depends on what you're trying to take through. How do you open the door? The key is repentance. Repentance. The prophets are brought in. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob recline at a great feast, but these people are left out. Repentance. The prophets preach repentance. We spent a series in our Lenten season talking about the prophets. What was their primary message? What were they concerned with? That you appeal to God, you ask for God's favor, not in recognition of what you have done, not as reward for what you have done, but your only appeal to God is mercy and grace. And what the prophets continually said to Israel is that you've missed it. You are coming to God based upon privilege, based upon an expectation that you will be rewarded, based upon your religious exceptionalism, and that is not the way to God. The way to God is through mercy and grace, through repentance through saying no to pretense, saying no to privilege, saying no to any expectation, any leverage over God that you could possibly gain through your own initiative and saying, no, I reject that. The only way through the door is repentance and faith. Knowing God means being carried through the door. Anyone who is a groom who's married, carry their bride across the threshold I didn't do that. Maybe that says something about me, but that's kind of a tradition that people have in our culture. And it actually goes way back to ancient times that the groom carried the bride across the threshold. And often it was because they stole the bride, but sometimes it was because it was to ward off evil spirits that you carried your bride into the room to ward off whatever evil spirits lurked in your home. So it has kind of this hokey Uh, history to it. But in our day, the tradition became more that the the groom would carry the bride into the new house to say, I am carrying you into this new life. This is what I am providing for you, and I will carry you into it. In other words, it's a little old-fashioned because we don't have families that work like that so much anymore. We have multiple breadwinners and so forth. But in the time where this was very fashionable, it was the man who was saying, I give up my rights, I give up my claims upon independence. I give up my own autonomy. And in fact, I'm going to carry you. I'm going to put my burdens, your burdens, upon myself. And I'm carrying you through the door into this new life. I have gained this for you. I have worked for this, and now I give it to you as a gift. And symbolically, I'm going to carry you into that. This is what Jesus is suggesting. To get through the door, you need him to carry you. But you want. I want, oftentimes, to carry ourselves. And what does Jesus call this? He says, you evildoers, evildoers. These people have some interest in spiritual things. They're interacting with Jesus. They're asking questions. They have some interest in God. They're not immoral people, but in some crucial way, they're not just ignoring... Uh, ignorant of the door. They're not just unaware, but they're intentionally ignoring it. They're intentionally choosing to not go through the path that Jesus has laid, to not walk through the door as he has presented it. They're demanding that God change the terms to widen the door. These people are not complaining that the door is narrow because of some pluralistic altruism, but so that it will accommodate them coming in without changing. Indeed, verse 30, there are those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. Now, parents, have you ever said that to your child, you know, little Tommy, you can't have the popsicle because you chose yourself first and there's not going to be enough. And so you're going to have to go without a popsicle because you put yourself first and we're selfish and everyone else you, you left behind. And what happens? Well, generally, they figure out how to manipulate the system. Well, last time, Mom told me that because I was first, I don't get the popsicle, so I'm going to be unselfish. I'm going to put myself last in order to what? To gain the popsicle, to gain whatever uh, is presented. And that's not what Jesus is getting at. It's not a method in order to gain salvation. It's not a method in order to ultimately get what you want just like with Israel Israel I came to you first God says not so that you could have privilege not so that you not because you were great not because you had anything that I needed I chose you out of the rest of the nations I appointed you to be my very beloved people but it was not supposed to rest only with you It was supposed to explode into the surrounding cultures. It was supposed to explode. Your blessedness, for me, was supposed to be blessed to other people. You were first, but first in priority of mission, of purpose. It wasn't so that you could be special and lifted up above the other nations. It was so that you could be a distributor of that blessing to everyone else. In Jesus' kingdom... Your lastness is your firstness. Instead of having the attitude of Israel, instead of having the attitude of the child that says, I should be last so that I can be first, now what Jesus is saying is that you must be last. You must consider yourself the least. You must consider yourself at the back of the line. You must be surprised that Jesus would come to you, not in effect, oh, of course you're coming to me because look at who I am. Your lastness is your firstness. Only the last finish first. Only those with nothing can get in through the door. The problem is that most people don't have nothing. They have something. They have a lot of something that makes them think that they have leverage over God, that they have right to walk through the door. They're worthy of God's attention. What Jesus is saying is no. The door is closed when you see it as a right when you see yourself as worthy of walking through the door, the door will close upon you. When you see the door as an opening to grace and mercy, it is wide, it is beautiful, and that's the key to opening it. Those who expect to be first will end up dead last, and they will mourn and grieve. It says they will, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. What a terrible, terrible image. But think about it. A person who enters a race, and they expect to be eighth. Maybe I'll just kind of finish, not dead last, but I'm going to be eighth. But if they finish ninth, they're not super disappointed. They're not going to cry and mourn, gnash their teeth. But if they go into the race expecting, I'm going to finish first because I'm a winner and because I'm better than everyone else, and then they finish dead last, what happens? They're crushed. They mourn. They weep those who are expected to be passed over, those who are expecting to be last, those who view themselves as having no leverage over God, when they're invited to the front line, they're overjoyed. They have no claim, no leverage, and yet God has taken them from the back of the line, from Loserville, and has given them status as son and daughter of the king. People don't rejoice when they're given their due. People don't rejoice when they're recognized for what they think they should be recognized for. People rejoice because they've been given something that they don't deserve and can never earn. And that's the joy of heaven. The joy of heaven is getting on the other side of the door and saying, me, really, I was allowed in? That's the joy of heaven. When you realize you had no claim over God. In fact, you had every reason that he would reject you. And he brings you in. He says, welcome into my kingdom. That person turns around and looks at the door and says, look how wide it was. It included me. It was wide enough to include even me. The person on the other side looks at the door and says, wow, how wide it was. The person on this side of the door who doesn't want to change, who wants to bring in everything that they were before, says, look how narrow, look how contrived, look how small. Two different perspectives. The joy of heaven says, me? Really? I can come in? That's the key, and it unlocks the other side of the door. The key is repentance, and it opens up joy. Anyone in here uh, into Doctor Who, the British uh, science thing? I'm not really interested in it, but I do have a kid and I've watched a couple of episodes and one of our sons really enjoys it. Now, you know what the TARDIS is? The TARDIS is that blue police box and it's about, you know, four feet by about seven feet. It's not huge, but this is the box that Doctor Who uses to travel around in the space-time continuum or whatever he does. And... The point is that he steps into this box, which is not very big. It's tiny in terms of all of history and the whole world. It's tiny. But the whole world is opened up to him on the other side of that door. In fact, all of history is opened up to him. What looks very small from the outside looks fantastically large when you walk into it. The door is widest to those who go in because the new world is opened up, a new way of life, a new way of thinking that you would never have conceived of, you would never have considered before. And it's most narrow to those who stay out. Those who go in are amazed at how wide the door is. It was wide enough to include them. Those who stay out complain about the terms. Now, context again. What is going on with Jesus? Where is he headed He is headed to Jerusalem. He's turned his face towards Jerusalem. He's going to die. He's not just offering a detached theory on the afterlife. He's not just speculating about, oh, this might be it. He's not just offering himself as kind of a messenger. He is saying, no, I am that door. I am the key. I am the only way to get to God. He's not just offering a detached theory, but he is going to die for what he says. He is going to die to open up that door to you and I. He's all in. The answer to to the question is is as broad or as narrow as you would like to make it. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem to guarantee that anyone can come through the door. Anyone, no matter how rich, no matter how poor, no matter how bad, no, no matter how good, male or female, slave or free, anyone, Jew or Gentile. I am going to Jerusalem to lay down my life to guarantee that the door is that broad. He is widening it enough to include you and me and anyone who will come. He says, I'm not going to split hairs with you. I'm not going to give you a number. Don't you see? I'm going to my death to answer the question of who and how do I find salvation? The narrow door seems exclusive. It seems very narrow minded. But anyone, Jesus says, can come through. Everyone here can come through. And he says later that people from the east and the west and the north and the south, as a way of saying the whole world can come in and take their places where? At the feast that will go on forever. He's offering a warning. Yes, and he uses some incredibly vivid image images. He's offering a warning and he's begging his hearers to repent, but not from the ivory tower, not just as a messenger, not just as a deliverer of some message. He's taking up resonance in the question. He's saying, if you want to know the answer of how many people will be saved, look at me. Look at me as I go to the cross. Thirty-four. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and we'll say to do this in conclusion. You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you or sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Now, given the number of animals that's available for Jesus to choose, it's very curious that he chooses a chicken. We've got five at our house, and they don't inspire a lot of confidence. They kind of just wander around and peck at at things. They don't have any weapons other than the beak, and that doesn't hurt too bad. But given the number of animals available, why a a chicken? Why a hen? A mother hen is not inspiring of confidence. How is that going to protect us? Barbara Brown Taylor, who is commenting on this passage, says, if you think about this image, this is very typical of Jesus. And she says, Jesus is always turning things upside down so that children and peasants wind up on top while kings and scholars land on the bottom. He's always wrecking our expectations of how things should turn out by giving prizes to losers and paying the last first. So, of course, he chooses a chicken which is about as far from a fox as you can get. That way the options become very clear. You can live by licking your chops or you can die by protecting the chicks. Jesus won't be king of the jungle in this or any other story. What he will be is a mother hen who stands between the chicks and those who mean to do them harm. She has no fangs, no claws, no rippling muscles. All she has is her willingness to shield her babies with her own hands. Body. If the fox wants them, he will have to kill her first, which he does, as it turns out. Lots of stories are told by those cleaning up after barnyard fires. In the smoldering ashes, the roof is caved in, there's wood pieces laying on top of each other, and as they clear these smoldering ashes, what they'll find oftentimes is this carcass of a hen, a burned, crispy chicken a hen. And as they pick up the carcass of the hen, what comes out? Dozens of little chicks. The mother hen has gathered those chicks under her, under her protection, not because she had fangs and rippling muscles, but because she had a willingness to die for her chicks. This is perhaps the most vivid image yet in the gospel of Luke of what Jesus intends to do what he thinks his death is all about. And what he's doing, friends, is he's offering to be that mother hen who covers you, who gives his life literally for you and I. Walking through the door, walking through this narrow door, what it means ultimately is taking up residence underneath the wings of Jesus, underneath his protection. It means saying, I'm lost, I'm in danger, I'm helpless, I'm sinful, I'm broken. There's no way I could get through the door on my own. Jesus, would you carry me? Would you protect me, even from myself? Would you take up residence underneath the protection, the death of Jesus? Gather, he says, gather under him. Gather under his death so that you can live. Would you do so now? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak to us in very practical terms with very vivid images. We thank you that you don't stand far off, but that you actually come and you take up residence in our world, that you offer to cover us, that you offer to cover our shame, our guilt, our confusion, our sorrow, our brokenness, our sinfulness. Lord, I pray that we would presume upon that, that we would that we would no longer presume upon our own selves, our own righteousness, but presume upon your mercy and grace. Walk through the door and take up residence underneath you. We pray in Jesus' name that this would be true. Amen.